Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Hear God's word for us. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Caleb, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And I'm just really excited to be uh, preaching a message with to you all, um, with you all from God's Word this morning. Before we uh, dive into the sermon this morning, uh, let's pray one more time together uh, to for God to be speaking through me and working among all of us so that we can hear from Him this morning. So please pray with me, dear Lord. Uh, we we just praise you. Um, we love you. And we just affirm again that you are worthy of all our praise and all the honor and glory. And, and God, we just acknowledge what a privilege it is uh, to gather with other believers and, and, and worship you together with them and hear from you um, who we are in you and how we should live out of that. God, I ask that you work um, through me and through all of us that we may be um, in tune to hear what you'd have to say to each one of us and about who we are and how we're supposed to, to live and be in this world and that we would be transformed by your spirit's power. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray this. Um, amen. We'll start off. I need some audience participation. So I'm curious, by a show of hands, how many people here currently work a job that is different than what the job your parents had? So, oh, okay. Yes, this is a little better. This is better. Can you hear me better now? Great. All right. I, let's see, I didn't see those hands, so let's see them again. Raise your hand if you're working a job different than your parents did. All right. Just about everyone here. Interesting. Do you all know how strange that is? Considering the scope of human history, most people throughout history, whatever job their parents had was their job. If your parents were a farmer, you became a farmer. But today, uh, in our modern culture, we have to spend the first 20 to 30 to even 40 years of our lives trying to figure out what we want to be when we grow up. And, th and this is just one example of the many ways in which modern life and modern culture is unique in that we have to each individually define ourselves. We no longer look to society, those outside of us, our parents, uh, religion, 
um, our cultural expectations or norms to define who we are and how we should live, um, but rather each one of us has to look inside ourselves and figure out on our own who is my true self and how am I going to be real to that. And this may seem better to us in some ways, and there's some benefits to the freedoms that we have in our modern culture, but ultimately I think if you, would, you would agree and you'd experience with me that, that this pressure to individually choose who we are apart from anything outside ourselves is ultimately exhausting. It produces a lot of anxiety inside us, and at the end of the day, it can be incredibly isolating and lead us apart from one another. And for many of us, this existential identity crisis, these questions about who we are, how we know that, and, and, and why we are even here in this life, can lead us to deconstruction and lead us to questioning or wrestling with our faith. Perhaps the person you feel like you want to be isn't accepted in the faith community that you're raised in. Or perhaps you look around at your faith community and you see what other people in, in, in the church that, that you are a part of are, were like, and you're like, I don't want to be that kind of a person. I don't, I don't, how they were hateful and judgmental towards other people. I don't want to be like that. And so we're still left to figure out on our own who are we supposed to be and what are we supposed to do out of that. As a church, we've been going through uh, this letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we've seen so far in, in, in our series called Reconstructing Faith, in these first three chapters of Paul's letter, he is describing how God in Christ has made the Ephesians into a new people, how he's adopted them into his family, how he's brought them back from being dead in their sins to being alive in Christ, how he's brought Jew and Gentile in, back together into one fam new family in Christ, and after these first three chapters explaining the new identity that the Ephesians and us believers have as well, he's now shifted in chapter four in these next three chapters to explain what they are to do out of that identity, what that new identity means for how they are to live and act. And last week, Pastor Gabe talked about this unity, how God's people together are supposed to be a unified and maturing community. And what that looks like is each person and all together uh, following in, in the example of Christ, of dying to self for the benefit of other people. And we're going to continue that theme today as well. And we're going to see how that is ultimately rooted in our new identities as believers in Christ and what that practically looks like in our lives. So if, if you would turn with me, if you haven't done so already, to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. And today we're going to see that as believers, our truest identity is this new identity that we've received from Christ, this new self that we just had read over us. And after seeing why that's true, how that's an identity that builds others up in love, we're going to see three things about this new identity, and then we're going to see how God feels and how, and how God reacts to us not living in, in, in line with that new identity. Before I get into that, I just want to say that this sermon is pretty focused on what it means to be a believer. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today, we're super happy that you decided to join us this morning. Uh, but just know um, that I, when I say the word you, I'm primarily speaking to believers. I'm so glad you're here because you're going to get a chance to get an inside look into what it's like to be a believer and be a follower of Jesus. Um, but if you, that's you today. If you are a follower of Jesus, know this, that the true you is the new you. That your new identity, this new self that you've received, is your truest identity. And Paul contrasts that with this old self, this old identity that the Ephesians had before they learned Christ and, and followed him. And he describes this old self and tells them that you're to walk differently than you used to walk, live differently than you used to live before you knew Christ. 
And this is true of us as well today. Because previously, our old identity, as Paul describes in verses 17 through 19, was characterized by a total corruption of the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act. You see those in those first few verses. That the Ephesians have a corrupted head, a corrupted heart, and corrupted hands. And that ultimately, this this faulty thinking and these disordered desires come together to produce actions that are done out of selfishness that harm other people. In verse 19, Paul says, in describing this former self, he says, they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then he contrasts this in chapter 5, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, but he contrasts it in there saying, be imitators of God as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual morality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. Paul contrasts here just one example of the many ways in which the Ephesians sought to please themselves, and all of us too in our old selves seek to please ourselves at the cost of other people. And the one example that he points to as, as as showing that most clearly is sexual morality. And the reason here, it's, it's, it's so fascinating that he says sexual morality is wrong. It's not just because God says so. God says you shouldn't live this way. But even more fundamentally and deeper than that, at its core, sexual morality is using another person for your own pleasure. It's using another person's body to please yourself, which is the exact opposite of our identity as believers, as people who imitate Christ in laying down our bodies and our desires for the sake of other people just like Christ did, which is our new identity that we've received from him. And this new self that, as Paul talks about in verse 24, it's from Christ. The, Paul tells them to put on the new self, created after the likeness of Jesus in true righteousness and holiness. So you see here this new self, it's created, and, it's, and this new self, this word, is, is literally the new man or the new humanity. And it's make, making you think back to chapter 2, verse 15, where Paul talks about how God in Christ created one new man or one new humanity out of the two, and taking Jew and Gentile and bringing them together into one body, the church. And so this new self, it's first and foremost a communal identity. It's an identity that we share as believers, being put on this one body, Christ's body, the church, and we can only become who we're meant to be individually when we do that in community with other people when we grow in Christ's body, the church, into who Christ is, we become who we are individually and do it when we do that together. This new self is also created, meaning there's a creator. We don't get to decide on our own uh, what that new self is or new identity is. We don't look deep within ourselves to find out what what makes me happy in any given moment to be my true identity, but rather we're supposed to look outside ourselves to Christ to see that's who I'm actually supposed to and meant to be. And this new self, it's made in the likeness of God, which should make you think about Genesis 1 and 2, how God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, in his own image after his likeness. And so this new identity that we have as believers is a restoration of the original goodness that God made us with before we were broken by the fall and ruined by sin. And it's restoring us to being like God and demonstrating who God is to the world primarily in how we demonstrate God's others-focused, self-giving love that God displays in creating, but also when Christ comes and dies for us. And so this is a new identity that we have, and these are the two identities that we could potentially live into. 
And Paul tells them, put off the old self, put on the new self. Because although this new self is a gift that God has given us and created into us, with us, we still have to make the choice, which identity are we going to choose to live out of? Are we going to pretend like we're someone we're not and act out in selfishness and tear down other people? Or are we going to be true to our authentic new selves and build other people up in love? And that might sound a little strange to you. How can I have these two identities that I could choose to live into one or the other? But this happens all the time in our lives. Right, just, just think back with me the first time you moved out of your parents' house. Now, if you were, if you were like me, it was maybe when you were going off to college, you went to college, had a whole semester there on your own, having new experiences, becoming kind of a different person and learning new things about yourself because you're on your own doing life by yourself. Then your first Christmas break comes around. You come back home and you find yourself just like that, acting like a high schooler again. You've, you've changed, you're a different person, but you come back home and now you're acting like you were a teenager. And, you know, I was sharing this this past week, and another pastor, not here at this campus, but a different campus, who's in his 40s, was like, yeah, I did the same thing, too, today as well. I'm 40 years old, I got teenage kids myself, and when me and my siblings get together, it's so easy for all of us to just act like we're teenagers again. Just because it's, it's, we have these multiple identities uh, at times, these multiple ways of being in the world, and it can be really easy to act like someone you're not in certain situations. And what Paul is saying here is that as believers... If you choose to act out in selfishness towards others, to tear other people's down, to not build in love, it's like being an adult, being a different person, but acting like how you were as a teenager. That's not who you are anymore. And so what is, what is true, what's the deepest and truest desire of each of us as believers is that the truest you is the new you. When you may have many other strong desires at any given moment to do things that are contrary to that, but most fundamentally, your deepest desire, your deepest identity as a believer is to build other people's up in love. And there's three ways that Paul outlines here what that looks like in our daily lives, and this passage explains. So the first way is the true you builds with words. Our words are incredibly powerful. Proverbs 18, 21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And in, in doing so, we as human beings have been given this great capacity to speak and to communicate, and we image and we model God in this way. That God, has, his speech is powerful, and he created the whole world just by his words. And in a similar way, as creatures, we, we imitate that in small ways where our words have that capacity of life and death, that we can build others up in encouragement, or we can tear them down with, with harsh and mean words that, that tear them apart. And that's why Paul says in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members with one another. Now, just something on the side. Whenever you read the word let in the Bible, you should really understand that as should or must. Sometimes let in English means like, you have permission to do this, like you can do this if you want to or not. But in this context and throughout the Bible, when the word let is being used in English, it's, it's a third-person imperative, and it's saying you must, if each, each one of you must speak the truth with your neighbor. And the reason that Paul gives why we shouldn't tell lies, which includes like twisting the truth, and the reason we should speak the truth is that we are members of one another. Because we, as believers, are, are in one body, Christ's body. 
And so to lie to someone else, to tear someone else down with your words is to lie to yourself because we are members of one another. And since, you're tr- since truth is supposed to build others up because it's, it's another person who you're joined with in the same body and you're supposed to build them up as you would want to build yourself up, you're going to need to say that truth um, in a way um, that the other person can receive it. You need to speak the truth in love, as we heard last week. And so your motivation matters for how you speak the truth to other people. If your motivation is to build other people up in love, you're going to find a way and a manner to communicate that truth to them in a way that they can receive it and actually put it into practice and be built up by it. But if your motivation in speaking the truth is only to show yourself to be right in front of other, other people, the, just saying what's true is going to tear other people down. It's not going to be done in a way that they can receive and actually put into practice and grow from that. That's why Paul says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. If your motivation is to build others up, you're going to do it in a timing and in a manner that builds them up. It's going to do it as fits the occasion. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 27:14, which says this, if anyone blesses their neighbor loudly early in the morning, you'll be taken as a curse. <laughs> which really offends me initially as a morning person, but uh, there's a lot of wisdom that Solomon, uh, through the Holy Spirit, is recording for us in that. That if you have something really encouraging you want to say to someone, a blessing, but you do it in a manner, loudly, and in a time, early in, early in the morning, that the other person can't receive that blessing well, it'll be taken as a curse. So if you're trying to encourage and build someone up and you do it in a way or time, doesn't fit the occasion, it's not going to be received by that person and won't build them up. I had a boss in college who he would never give me feedback, positive or negative, unless he asked permission first. He was just very committed to that principle. If I was working, he would always come to me and say, hey, Caleb, is now a good time to give you feedback? And I could say, actually, no, I'm kind of busy or no, like, I'm not in a good place to hear it right now. And he'd be like, all right, fine. We'll talk later and we can talk later about that. And he gave me and empowered me and gave me the opportunity to tell him, now's the occasion or now's not the occasion. And this was even for encouragement, even for telling me, hey, Caleb, that thing you did went really well. He wanted to make sure that I was in a place to receive that encouragement well. And I think we can all learn a lot from that, giving the other people the opportunity to tell us if the occasion is right to receive that encouragement or feedback. And this is who you are in Christ, these, these, these people who build others up in words. The true you builds with words. Your strongest desire at any given moment might be to tear other people down with your words, but that's not your deepest desire as a believer in what Christ has made you to be. And this is what our church needs. We need, as a unified and maturing community, we need people who build with words instead of people who tear down with words. But one of the things, the biggest thing, that can so often prevent us from building with our words is anger, which is why the true you is good at anger. See, as a believer, it's, it's no longer about, it's not about no longer experiencing anger and just being done with that emotion, but actually it's about being good at anger, about expressing it in a proper time in a proper way. And, and, and Paul describes this in verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. See here, Paul commands anger. 
He says, be angry, get upset, get mad, and do not sin, which is striking because we often can think of anger as an emotion that Christians shouldn't have and we should stuff that at all, at all costs. But he says, no, be angry because certain situations require anger. Certain situations, anger at injustice or sin is, is a right and proper response to what is happening. And also, I think he's telling us that we need to be honest with our anger and honest with those feelings that we have, that it makes, it does no good for us to deny that we are feeling anger rather than dealing with it for what it is. And, and Jesus, well, actually, before that, anger at its core, because ang- anger is not uh, a, a wrong emotion. Anger at its core is really just focused and passionate energy towards destruction and out of defense of something, which can be right and good, if it's used towards the destruction of injustice and sin and out of a defense of the vulnerable and of human dignity. But all too often, in our broken world, anger is used for the opposite. It's used to defend people's pride, defend injustice and the status quo, and it's used directed against people who don't deserve to receive that. But Jesus demonstrates how we are to properly demonstrate anger. In one story, in in Mark 3, verse 5, Jesus is on the Sabbath, and he sees a man with a withered hand, and there's these religious leaders around him who are looking to trap Jesus by, because he's going to see if he'll heal someone on the Sabbath and therefore break their laws. And when this happens, Jesus says that he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart. Similar language, as we'll see here in a little bit, to Ephesians 4. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So Jesus is angry. He's rightly angry and upset at these Pharisees for upholding their religious traditions and their man-made guidelines for these rules in a way that actually is causing harm to people. And he's rightly upset and angry at that. But in response, what does he do to that anger that he experiences towards them? Does he yell at them? Does he punch the Pharisees? Does he go away by himself and just kind of sulk and mope and get upset at what they're doing? No, instead he turns towards the man while he's angry still, and heals him. He acts towards healing, restoration, and justice, even in the midst of his anger. And this is hard to do. And that's why Paul tells us, be angry, get angry, and do not sin. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Because so often, our anger can be used and hijacked by the enemy, by the devil, in ways that tear other people down and are harmful to ourselves and other people. That's because anger most often it reveals what we truly value, what we want to defend, what we want to destroy. So think with me, when was the last time you got really angry? What was the last thing that really set you off? And if you have a pen and you're taking notes, write that down. What was the last thing that really got you upset? And just start to, as you think back to that moment with me, what what were you valuing? What value of yours was being overridden that led to that anger? And it might be a mixture of values, but what what were you valuing and wanting to defend that caused you to to become so angry? I'll just say for myself, when when I'm not living in my new self, the thing that gets me angry more than almost anything is being shown to be wrong in front of other people. Is, or, or maybe being attempted to be shown to be wrong in front of other people, because uh, I'm always right, but... <laughs> anyways, anyways. Uh, when, the, when that happens, in front of other people, I can get, find myself getting really frustrated and really angry, and what that reveals to me about my values is in that moment, I am valuing being right, being correct, 
or rather being seen to be smart, intelligent, competent, above all else. And that's what's most important to me in that moment. And if I'm not uh, seen as a smart or intelligent person, I don't have value because that's what I'm placing my worth in, is being smart and intelligent. And uh, if you're like me, when I get angry in that way, most people don't notice it. I try and just keep it below the surface. I stuff it because as a good Christian, I'm not supposed to get angry. And so I just let it simmer inside me. But inevitably, that eventually boils over into someone else in a a sharp comment or or a harsh word to someone um, that's really quick and and sharp who didn't do anything to make me angry. Which is why Paul says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You see here, Paul names two ways that we can go wrong with anger, right? Bitterness, like, like I so often do where I don't, be honest with the anger I'm feeling and, and deal with it. And so I just let that grow, grow, uh, take root inside me and let myself grow resentful towards other people. Or there's the blowing up way where you explode in wrath and anger and shouting and slander towards other people. But being good at anger, this true you that's good at anger does neither of those two things. It doesn't stuff it and deny your feeling of anger. It doesn't blow up and lash out at other people. And, we, and, we, and we, we put these two negative ways to deal with anger, we put it away because that is not who we are. That's not the true you that is good at anger. And this is what our church needs. Our church, if we're going to be a unified and maturing community, we're going to need people who are good at anger, who live into their true identity as people who practice anger well. Because otherwise, we'll be a community where narcissism flourishes, where people who are going to take advantage of others and, and, and abuse others are going to do that freely. And no one out of anger is going to step in the, in the way and say, hey, that's not okay how you're treating these people. Or we're going to be a community that values truth, but, doesn't, but expresses it in a way that's not loving. And we tear each other down with our words instead of build each other up. The true you is good at anger. And we need that in our community. And this can't happen. Being, being good at anger as a community, it can't happen unless we radically forgive. Which is why the true you radically forgives. Because we're all inevitably going to sh- fall short of building other people with our words, of, of being good at anger, and as such, as a community, it's, it's important, and it's true to who we are as believers, that we radically forgive. And it's so, it's so crazy. Throughout this passage, Paul is giving really aspirational values for what the church to look like. Like, this is kind of the ideal, like, being coming angry and not sinning, building others with words, not saying falsehoods, not stealing and building and giving to other people, all this stuff, really aspirational. But in all this aspirational vision casting, he still says, we forgive one another. Because the church, the Christian community, this side of eternity is going to be imperfect. We're going to fall short and hurt each other, and we're going to need to practice forgiveness. It is hardwired into the code of what it means to be followers of Jesus, what it means to be the church, that we're going to practice forgiveness here because we're going to fall short of that towards each other. And that's why in 30, verse 31, Paul says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And it's important to see here that Paul does not say, excuse one another, as God in Christ excused you. And that's often how we interpret forgiveness. To forgive someone is to say, it's not actually that bad that they did that thing. Or to receive forgiveness from God is like God saying that it's not actually bad that I sin. But no, forgiveness is very different from excusing things. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in his essay on forgiveness. He says this 
Real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that is left over without any excuse after all allowances have been made and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man or woman who has done it. Because to, to excuse what can really produce good excuses is not Christian charity, it's only fairness. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And so Paul says here, be angry and forgive. Recognize the harm that someone's done to you. Don't deny that it hurts. Don't deny that the person has done something completely wrong and hurt you. But nevertheless, recognize that's true, acknowledge those feelings, and choose, make the choice to not hold that against the other person. And to be willing, be the first one willing to restore that relationship if the other person is also ready to come back and restore that as well. And we don't typically do both of these things. Right? We either we get angry and we hold a grudge, or we deny our feelings of anger and we say, no worries, it's just it's fine. Don't don't worry about it. And that's why it's actually so important to say the words, I forgive you. When there's been a relational rupture and someone's done something to harm you and then they've asked for your forgiveness, to actually tell them, no, I forgive you. Rather than say, oh, it's no worries, don't even worry about it, it's fine, it's totally okay. No, be honest and, and recognize that, no, I'm saying I forgive you. What you did did hurt me and I am angry, but I'm choosing not to treat you in accordance with what you did to me. I'm choosing to treat you differently because God has done that to me. Because the only way that we as Christians can do this, the only way that we can forgive other people, these inexcusable things, is that God has done that for us. Jesus tells his parable in Matthew 18, uh, verse 23 through 35. He tells this parable of the unforgiving servant, where this king had a servant who owed him, in today's money, $6.2 billion dollars. And this servant, there's no way he's going to pay that back. An astronomical amount of money. And so he's, the king's going to throw the servant and his family into slavery to, make, to pay, pay it back. Instead, the, the, the servant gets down, is, is asking for forgiveness. The king relents, has pity, and out of compassion says, it's all right, I'll forgive you that amount. That servant immediately goes from the king's presence, finds a coworker of his who owes him $12,000, which like, by no means that chump change. That's a good chunk of money. But still, like, that's pennies compared to $6.2 billion, and demands that his coworker pay him back that 12000 right then and there. And when the king hears this, he gets enraged, takes that unforgiving servant, and throws him in jail. And Jesus closes the parable by saying, this is how my heavenly father will treat each and every one of you unless you forgive your, your brother and sister from the heart. And the point here is that unless you recognize how much you've been forgiven, you're not going to be able to forgive other people. And then it's, then it's not just for God to forgive you. It's not a lot fair. And it really, I mean, the pro- problem with the unforgiving servant, if he really recognized that he was forgiven $6.2 billion, he wouldn't have gone to his, to his neighbor and asked for that 12000 back. The fact he did that shows that he wasn't secure in the forgiveness he'd received from that king, that he was seeking to get something back while he could because he wasn't secure that he was actually forgiven by him. But we as believers, it's only when we recognize how much we've been forgiven by God that we're able to forgive others. Because we are a forgiven people. That's true to our identity as Christians. We're forgiven people. 
And so we should be a forgiving people. We should offer that forgiveness easily to others. And when we don't do that, when we don't offer forgiveness, when we're tearing other people down with our words and anger, the Holy Spirit, God himself, grieves. He grieves when you aren't you. Because the Spirit, he's the one who created in us this new identity as believers, and it's the one Spirit, as says earlier in chapter 4, that is making the unity in the church. And he grieves, his heart is broken when you aren't living in to who you actually are as a believer. That's why Paul says in verse 30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, that all these ways that you breed disunity, that breaks God's heart, that grieves him. Imagine with me, like your best friend is acting totally different than the way that you know they are. They're acting totally out of line with their character and just throwing their life away. And maybe that's true for some of you today. Like, what would that do? How would you feel in response to seeing your friend throw their life away and not act like who they are? It'd break your heart. And that gives you some sense of how God feels when he sees each of us not live into our new selves, pretend like we're someone we're not, and, and tear down and destroy other people. And when that happens in the church, it breaks his heart, just like a good friend. Because, and, and, and the reason it does is because it's, it's we're being different than who we are, being different than who he's making us into. And that's what's so unique about what Paul is doing here. You know, all the things that I've described today in this passage, most people would agree with. Like the Greek philosophers and moralists in Paul's day or our current world religions and world philosophies, they'd all agree, right? We should speak the truth. We shouldn't be blow up at people in our anger. We should forgive. We'll talk next week about um, not stealing and, and giving to others, right? All those things are pretty basic. Most people would agree with them. The difference here, the really different thing here about why you should do these things as a follower of Jesus is that it's true to your identity. We don't do these things because it's the right thing to do. We don't do these things just because it'll make us live a better life in the long run or because it makes us happy here and now or we're trying to avoid punishment. No, the reason we live this way as believers is because it's true to who God made us to be. It's us being ourselves, being true to our identity. And so will you listen to who God says that you are today in this passage? To, the, to who the Spirit is making all of us into together. The true you is the new you. This new identity as someone who builds others up in love rather than acting out of selfish desires. The true you builds with words. The true you is good at anger. And the true you radically forgives. And just like a good friend, God's heart breaks when we're not being true to our new identities. But also, just like a good friend, he is there, right next to us, right here, wanting to help, wanting to help us be true to who we are in him. And so let's do that. Let's rely on him to make us that. So we're going to do that as we close this morning. We're going to pray a prayer together, uh, asking God to help us live into this new identity he's given us, to make us into his instruments of peace. Um, And it's a prayer that Christians have used throughout history, Um, It's written by St. Francis of Assisi. It's going to be on the screen, and we're going to read it aloud together to close our time. So read this with me. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, 
Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, and it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.